Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. So today it's actually dwarfed by all of these modern buildings, but it's this kind of incredible reminder that the history is still there and it's pretty much intact from the way it was all those years ago. That's Gina DeMuro, and she's recently published a new travel guide for following in the footsteps of Alexander Hamilton in New York City. Lace up your tennis shoes. She's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by West Home Publishing, publishers of the new book, Cabal, The Plot Against General Washington, by Mark Edward Lender. Available now. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Welcome back. Today's episode of Dispatches is going to be a little bit different than some of the episodes we've typically done, where we focus in on one singular subject or maybe some new research Today we're going to talk to JAR contributor and freelance writer Gina DeMuro about a topic she knows very intimately, that is her home, New York City. Now, we're not just going to talk about New York City in the colonial period, which would be pretty fascinating, uh, or Alexander Hamilton's life, but we're going to talk specifically about how to retrace the footsteps of Alexander Hamilton in the Big Apple. Now, He lived there for quite a while. He owned that city, you know, socially speaking, and certainly now with the hit of the uh, the success of the hit Broadway musical. Uh, But Alexander Hamilton was, in so many ways, uh, a real New Yorker, even in the way that New Yorkers remain today. Alexander Hamilton was born not in North America, but in the Caribbean. Uh, And he came to this city at a young age. Uh, It's sort of a sad story early on. He loses his mother and sort of comes of age uh, in really everything south of the Brooklyn Bridge today. But he embodied that spirit. I mean, he came from somewhere else. uh, And even though he could feel very isolated at times while in New York, uh, it was the place where he made his home. And that's one thing you can say about New Yorkers. When you go to that city, the greatest city in the world, I do believe that, uh, and you see people from all over the planet. All of them, regardless of where they were born, regardless of their accent, uh, regardless of their religion, if you ask them where they're from, without a second hesitation, they will say they're from New York. They're New Yorkers. There's something about that city and that community that draws you in and keeps you there. Uh, And New York's always been that way. Uh, And in a lot of ways, you know, we could expand that and say that colonial America has always been that way. You know, when New York was founded, it, unlike most of the other cities in the New World, was not founded as an English colony or an English city. It didn't have that English influence. It was Dutch. It was New Amsterdam. And it had this wide sort of reputation in the Atlantic world of not only being the single largest port in the Atlantic world, uh, as far as uh, natural harbor and shelter from a storm is concerned. Uh, but it had this reputation of being a very open place. 
I mean, the first synagogue in North America was, no surprise, in New York City at the time. And that wasn't because New York's long history with the Jewish community today, sort of playing backwards, it was because New York was one of those inviting places. So even when the, the English will take that city over, and the flag changes from the flag of the Dutch to the flag of, uh, of England, uh, even when that happens, most people who live there really didn't notice a much of a change. I mean, they lived in a sort of pluralistic, diverse society anyway. And that's, you know, the origins of the world that Alexander Hamilton comes into. Uh, he's not there at the beginnings of New York City. New York City is well established by that point. Uh, but he is there when it's really sort of ingrained that that's what this place is. You know, that is the reputation now for over 100 years of New York City. So when you hear Gina talk today about Alexander Hamilton and his footsteps around the place, understand you're talking uh, about and hearing from a person who who is intimately familiar with these details. These aren't just places on a map for sightseers, but these are places that she sees all the time. And you can hear that in the interview. It's a wonderful, wonderful exchange we have. Uh, so use this as your sort of uh, guide to the guide. You know, if you want to pop in your headphones, if you're ever in Manhattan, this is a good time to do it with this episode. But she's written a very detailed article that expands on a lot of the places that we don't get to talk about in our weekly show here on Dispatches. So it's something a little different, but it's one of those great ways we as history lovers and historians and Americans, really, uh, can connect with the past, walking in the footsteps of the past. It's hard to see the 18th century in New York City today, just as it's hard to see the 1930s, the 1860s, uh, or the 1640s. I mean, New York City is a place that is always building on top of itself. Uh, but with a little luck, a keen eye, and Gina's help, I think you'll find it to be a very rewarding experience. So sit back, relax, lace up those tennis shoes, and enjoy our interview with Gina DeMuro. Gina DeMuro, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about your background. So I currently work um, both as a translator and a history writer. So that's what initially led me to cross paths with the Journal of the American Revolution in the first place. What first drew your interest into this topic? I've always really been interested in Revolutionary War history, um, but it wasn't until I actually I got a job in downtown Manhattan in Side-Eye that I realized how much of the actual history was still standing, still visible. So um, on my lunch breaks and stuff and after work, I would kind of take walks around, you know, through Francis Tavern, also for happy hour, and kind of through Trinity Churchyard and everything. And they do, um, the Historical Societies of New York also do a really good job of hosting events and kind of putting the information out there. So yeah, once I was in the area, I got really kind of caught up in that specific history. What was New York City like in the 18th century? I mean, what would it have been like for a young Alexander Hamilton? So um, it was pretty different back in the 18th century in the time when Alexander Hamilton would have known it. A lot more farmland um, and a lot less buildings than there is now. And pretty much um, the entirety of the city was concentrated kind of below where Tribeca would be today. So financial district obviously was kind of the hub of the city then. Um, and actually most of its buildings were located down there. So the further north you went, it was 
much more sparsely populated, um, a lot of green, a lot more kind of pastoral than it was today. Um, and the further north you got, the less people and buildings you would see. How did Hamilton first arrive in New York City? So Hamilton was born on the Isle of Nevis, and he spent his early childhood there. Um, and I think the story is familiar to a lot of enthusiasts now that when he was younger, there was a big hurricane that really wreaked havoc on the island, and he wrote about it for the local paper. And people were so impressed that they actually collected this fund so he could go study in what was in the colonies, because there weren't a lot of opportunities in the islands. So he came to New York kind of just through the goodwill of other people who kind of saw the greatness in him and wanted to give him the opportunity to enhance, like enhance his natural talents. Excuse me. So he arrived in New York um, and he originally was going to intended to go to Princeton college. He was at a prep school in New Jersey and he really wanted to go to Princeton because it kind of had a reputation for being more Republican as he would have put it. Um, Whereas King's college where he wound up going, um, which is today's Columbia university was kind of a hotbed of like Tory sentiment that is a pro British sentiment. So that wasn't his first choice, but he actually didn't make it into Princeton. They thought he was a little too young So he wound up at King's College and then kind of being in New York permanently for his secondary education. One of the wonderful things about your article, uh, and very refreshing, by the way, to see, was your breakdown place by place of how to locate these uh, Hamiltonian uh, little enclaves still remaining in New York City today. Because, you know, when you're in New York, you know this, it's, it's really hard to spot the 18th century. I mean, you're not in colonial Williamsburg for Pete's sake. So uh, let's talk about some of those places. Tell us about first St. Paul's Chapel. Sure. So Columbia today is located um, uptown in Harlem, but back in the day when Hamilton would have been a student, it was based downtown um, around the financial district. And St. Paul's is actually still in the same location almost 300 years later. And when Hamilton was there, it was very close to the school. And he um, joined in this volunteer militia service. So it wasn't, it was about the time the war started and it wasn't that he signed up for the army, but it was um, kind of like, like the ROTC, I guess, today where they would train and drill, but they weren't probably going to get called up. So in the mornings before class, he and the other students that joined would go and drill in St. Paul's churchyard um, because of its proximity to Columbia. And so the building um, is kind of remarkably not like relatively unchanged from how it would have been when Hamilton was there. And it's pretty astounding considering that back in the 18th century, there was one huge fire and then a few smaller fires over the intervening years, which almost completely destroyed the evidences of early New York, but the chapel survived intact. And then centuries later, um, it actually stood kind of at the foot of the twin towers and it also survived the nine 11 attacks. And actually the first responders and personnel would go in the chapel, like to kind of get away from it and rest when they could. So it's this really, it's very small. I think people would be surprised when they see it because they, 
kind of expect it to be a little bit grander, but when Hamilton was alive, it would have looked a little more impressive because it would have been relatively taller than the buildings around it. And also it would have stood kind of on the farmland and this greenery and you could see straight through to the Hudson. So today it's actually dwarfed by all of these modern buildings, but it's this kind of incredible little reminder that oh, the history is still there and it's pretty much intact from the way it was all those years ago. Talk to us a little bit about, if you would, Gina, uh, the Bowling Green Fence. So the Bowling Green Fence is also, it's kind of one of the the city's little hidden secrets. Um, like so many people walk by it every day and probably have no idea what it is. So um, around 1776, well, it was 1776, after the Declaration of Independence was signed and it was being distributed throughout the colonies, the Sons of Liberty in New York, they read it out loud from City Hall, which is, it was located where the, um, they're kind of off of Broad Street today, where today there's a replica of it. It's not the original building. And so it was on Broad Street, not too far from St. Paul's and also King's College. So there is this huge mob. Um, they read out the declaration and the whole mob just got like really rowdy and excited. And they made their way over to the Bowling Green, which is like this public park uh, where there is also a statue of King George III. And funnily enough, the British had put up a fence to protect the statue a few years earlier because they kind of had the feeling that uh, maybe the sentiment was going to be that some people might try and destroy it. And that's exactly what happened. But the crowd basically just tore straight through the fence. They sawed through it and then they destroyed the statue anyway. And the fence has also survived intact except for that you can see some of the saw marks from the patriot mob still on the post when you go up today and you can just walk right by and touch it and see it and it's right from 1776 you know one of my favorite 18th century uh structures or buildings uh, in new york city is francis tavern tell us a little bit about that yeah francis tavern so it's a popular spot back in Hamilton's day and it's still a pretty popular spot today. So not too much has changed in that regard over two centuries, but actually unlike the Bowling Green fence in St. Paul's, it is not the original structure. And I think a lot of people who go there today kind of think it is like they're walking into this building like, Oh yeah, George Washington walked right through here too. And while it's on the pretty much the exact same spot, the original structure was built around 1720 um, that building was destroyed in the big fire that I briefly mentioned earlier. It was actually during the British occupation. Um, it was partially destroyed. They rebuilt it. And then there were a couple more big fires down in Fidei, uh in the 1800s. And pretty much by the early 20th century, not that much remained of the original structure. So the intervening like landlords after Samuel Francis who also acted as kind of Washington's spy master in New York during the British occupation. So they all had to kind of rebuild and it was actually slated for destruction. And um, a bunch of historic societies in New York decided that they were going to buy the property and save it and have it designated as a historic structure. So they um, tried to work from the foundations and replicate it as much as they could 
But the problem was there were no contemporary illustrations of the tavern as Samuel Francis owned it, as Hamilton and Washington would have known it. So the architects kind of looked at other buildings from the same time period in the same area in New York, but um, and tried to kind of conjecture what they thought it might have looked like. But unfortunately, we have no way of knowing if it's even close to the original. Um, but the upstairs of the tavern actually houses this museum, which does contain some original 18th century items and has done its best to replicate the long room where Washington gave his farewell address. So although it's not original as it was, they've done a really good job of trying to make it as authentic as possible. What did Hamilton do at Jane Street? Why was that relevant? So this is, I guess, a little of the lesser known ones in the Hamilton, New York lore. But um, after his famous duel in 1804, he was wounded, obviously, and his friends ferried him back across the river. And they took him to the friend of his house, William Bayard, which was located in what's today's West Village. Um, because of its proximity to the river, it was, he was pretty seriously wounded. So they took him there. And that was the house where he ultimately died. Um, they couldn't save him and they couldn't move him. So he passed away in that house. And if you go there today, you can see um, a plaque marking around where it was. And I believe the plaque actually says it was in this house that Alexander Hamilton died. But that's not strictly true. It's um, the actual house kind of was lost to history and destroyed uh, sometime in the 1800s. But the house that's there now is kind of in the proximity of where the original house once stood. A place I admittedly haven't been to before. Uh, but but obviously you have and you read about in great detail is the Weehawken dueling ground. A uh, big moment for Hamilton. So tell us about that. Sure. So I guess it's a little bit part of like New York snobbery. People think that all the relevant Hamilton historic sites are in New York. But actually New Jersey has one of the most important ones, the dueling grounds, where he faced off against Aaron Burr um, and ultimately was fatal, fatally wounded. And actually, you wouldn't think, but if you go there today, they have um, some pretty significant historic reminders of the duel there. And the actual, so they selected the dueling grounds because in New Jersey, it was, they were a little more lax with enforcing, you know, the ban on dueling. And also it was much more secluded. So you had easy access from the river if you weren't coming from Manhattan and this kind of foresty area that was really secluded. There was cliffs on one side. No one could really see what you were up to. So that was a pretty popular spot. And Hamilton's son had actually gotten into a fatal duel there as well. So um, after the duel, pretty shortly after, in the early 1800s, they erected the first monument to it around the spot where it really happened. But eventually, in the mid-1800s, they had to lay railroad tracks through so the original dueling grounds were destroyed and they kind of moved the monuments further up in the Palisade to where it is today. But the interesting thing is, and they've never been able to verify if this is actually a legitimate item or not, but supposedly part of the Weehawken Monument today can, has the boulder that Hamilton fell against after he was shot and that his friends propped him up against. 
So there's kind of conflicting historic evidence that some people say, oh, they don't mention this in the account, but then there is one kind of mention that after he was shot, they had to prop him up, but there's no way of knowing if that's the real boulder. But regardless, it's become this kind of a local lore that's up there too. And they have a statue of him, which is pretty impressive when you see it silhouetted against the skyline because you think, wow, when he traveled across the same river to pretty much the same spot, there was almost all farmland except for way down south and now today it's this huge sprawling skyline talk about his death and burial what did that entail so um uh, his death and burial we're back we're going back to fidei now down in the financial district and basically the city was in shock because it was a kind of scandalous incident the sitting vice president shot someone and Hamilton was a huge figure in New York. So pretty much the whole city was in mourning. There's a huge turnout for his funeral procession, a ton of onlookers. And it was, uh, it's a little moving to think about because he's the coffin started off at his in-laws house um, around the Tribeca area and then wound all the way down Broadway to Trinity church. And it was the area where he'd been a student and, the same streets he'd walk through, you know, when he was alive. And then you have to flash forward with his family following his coffin in this really dramatic funeral procession. And he was buried at Trinity Church on Broadway, which um, is also not the original building that was lost to a fire too. But his tomb is still there in the churchyard um, right next to his wife, Eliza, who she died much later than him, but she requested to be buried there after him. And visits like still hugely popular. Visitors still leave like flowers and all kinds of mementos. And every year they commemorate his birthday and his death day with some nice ceremonies that participation from both the church and some local historic societies. And sometimes even representatives from Nevis come and some of his like great 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 grandchildren come too so you get the impression that like the memory is very much alive there even though the tombstone is from the early 19th century gina demiro thank you for joining us thank you for having me the music played in this episode included works by kevin mcleod and the sturbridge colonial militia any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.